Should I do the Lion King? She's still sleeping, but this is Laura Grace. She was born not this past Monday, but the one before. She was born on the 18th, so coming up on two weeks here. We were at church uh, two weeks ago and uh, had a normal Sunday, had family dinner, and uh, then at midnight, I was asleep for about 45 minutes and had that uh, water show the, uh, <laughs> that happens and went to the hospital, and she was born the next morning, and she is super Super sweet, as you can see, named after her grandma, Laura, here, and we just love her so much, and we're super glad for you to meet her. Say hi. <laughs> Say hi. <laughs> That's it on that. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, really glad to be back here with you this morning. It's, uh, I haven't had two weeks out of the pulpit since we've uh, started the church, since before we launched when we were doing um, services in, uh, in uh, the Noob's home, and uh, so it was nice to have two weeks off. I'm really thankful for Matt and Dana for stepping in and, and, and preaching and filling in. I trust and uh, know that you were all blessed and ministered to by their uh, opening of God's word and, and preaching for us, and I'm thankful for them and thankful for, for all of you who serve so faithfully and um, week in and week out. You know, there's so many different people. There's a multitude of people. There's dozens and dozens of people here at the church that, that make our Sunday experience and our Sunday services possible, um, from the refreshments outside to the candles here, the communion, the preaching, the, the music, the lights, the money that pays for our space. I mean, everything that happens here um, is, is, is provided by um, members of our church, by you, and uh, including the preaching of God's word when, when I'm out as well. And so I'm just really thankful for our church and I've uh, been getting some good time just to reflect on that and pray for you and be thankful for you. And um, yeah, I just uh, wanted to share that with you. We, we have a lot of exciting things coming up here um, in the month of December. Um, we're going to be finishing up our Proverbs series uh, in two weeks. This is our 10th part in this series. Um, we'll be in Proverbs next week, the following week. We'll jump into something else during the rest of the Christmas season. And then I'm thinking we're going to start a series on the church in January, maybe a six or seven part series on the church. What is the church? Um, what is a healthy church? And then some aspects of what makes a church and different components of a church. And um, I, uh, I hope that will be helpful for you. I'm praying on that. It's not 100% for sure, but I think that's where we're headed. Um, so you can be in prayer uh, on that as well, in addition, this month, um, well, next week, as Noah mentioned, we have our membership meeting. Um, if you're a member here at the church, uh, we'd love to have you at that. Lunch will be provided. Uh, if you are not a member at the church, you kind of just maybe come every once in a while, but you're just not a member, you're not into it, that's okay. This is going to be a members meeting, though. If you're in the process of membership, in other words, you're here planted down, this is your home church, this is where you want to be, you're jumping in the membership course next uh, month in January, and you're just here in the process, awesome, amen, that's great, we'd love to have you join. Um, so if you're in the process, or if you're a member, um, or um, you know, in, in those sorts of camps, we, we'd love to have you join in that meeting. And if you have questions on membership, or what that is, what it looks like, what it means, um, January, we're doing a membership course. It'll be our third or fourth one, I think our fourth one. And uh, we have about 25, 20 or 25 or so um, of you to add to membership, which we are super excited about. 
This month, in addition, we are doing a uh, little campaign for our 2020 outreach budget. We're calling it Love Your City. Do you have that slide, that Love Your City slide there? Um, and I'm going to explain this to you a bit. You'll see this board here that Tracy um, and, uh, and Dave made, um, and uh, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, I called her on Monday. I said, hey, can you make this board? And here it is. Um, so it's... That's pretty amazing. Um, and here's how this is going to work. We, uh, as a new church, we have been growing in a lot of different ways. God's been really gracious to us, and we started literally from scratch. We launched about a year and a half ago, and uh, God's been really good to us, and he's, and he's growing us in membership. He's growing us uh, budget-wise. He's growing us in depth and maturity. He's growing us in leadership. He's growing us in grace in all kinds of different ways. One of the things that happens, um, especially financially, is we're growing um, it, it, it's really expensive to do church here. Um, we pay like close to $6,000 a month just to be here one day a week. That might sound like a lot to you. Um, it's just how much it costs. It, that's just the, how much it costs anywhere that has uh, what we really need. And uh, you can imagine all the other costs that go into doing ministry. And we're, we're, our, our finances are growing, um, but they're still super tight. And what happens when finances in a church are super tight, there's certain things that don't get a lot of attention. Outreach is one of those things, um, at least putting money and resources to outreach. And so for 2020, we wanted to make sure that we had a budget set aside for that and that the money that we plan and hope to use for outreach doesn't get sucked up by other more urgent uh, line items. And so what we're doing this month so we're going to try to meet our 2020 outreach budget. It's about $9,500. And let me explain to you how this is going to work. We have this board here, and on this board there are numbers. These numbers here, I took the biggest one so you can look at it um, as I'm preaching and consider you pray about giving that amount there. Um, they, they, they go, you can put them on your fridge, though, seriously, they're really cool, they're, they're magnetized. You, and, and what happens, uh, what you're going to do is, uh, if you're so inclined, um, we'd love for you to grab one of these numbers, and in addition to your regular giving, friends, if you're able to, if you're willing to, if it's something you can do cheerfully, if it's something that you can afford to do, we'd ask you to give a little bit above and beyond what you normally give this month, and um, here's how we're going to do that. You're going to take one of those numbers, if you're so inclined, and what you're going to do is you're going to give the, the amount that that number is. It's kind of like a pledge card a little bit. And to make this attainable for everyone, we have numbers that go from $1 up to 190 once it gets to 30, it starts skipping. It goes 32, 34, 36, but you get the idea. So if you can give an extra $32, that's going to really help our outreach budget. If you can give an extra $10, that's really going to help the outreach budget. If we fill all these numbers here, that adds up to close to $9,500. So it's a little bit from everybody that adds up to a lot. And I would just love to have you consider praying about being involved in that if you're able to. And if you're not, that's okay. I certainly don't want it to, this to be something that you feel any sort of guilt about, but rather cheer as we look forward to all the plans that we have for 2020 and outreach. We have a line item, uh, itemized list um, for, for the budget that we're going to cover next week at the members meeting. If you're interested in knowing, well, what's this all going to go towards? We have it all laid out and planned, and we're going to cover that in detail next week. You'll also notice that number one through 30 are not on here. Those are down in the kids' rooms. So for you parents, if you checked in kids and they say, Mommy, we have to bring $10 to church next week, that's what that's for. They should have informed you about that down there. But we really wanted to get the kids involved, so we put the smaller numbers down there so they can bring them home. 
and uh, you get the picture. I have two kids in there, so, you know, I, <laughs> they may bring me the two biggest numbers to take care of, which is, that's just okay. But that, that, that's what will happen if you have kids in kids' ministry, if you'd like them to participate. And of course, uh, if, you, if you would not like them to, they, they certainly don't have to, but we did want them to get involved in that. We feel like that's a bit fun. So please consider giving towards that. We're calling it Love Your City. All of this money is going to go towards ministry in our city. Some of it's gonna be for awareness stuff. We're here as a church. We want to help you know you love you. Some of it's gonna be for city events. Um, for example, we're doing the Glitz next Saturday. It'll go towards stuff like that next year, um, providing um, you know, uh, Thanksgiving turkeys for um, uh, low-income folks through the Boys and Girls Club, things like that in the city. And then as well, just mercy ministry and felt needs, helping people who are in need and who really need care, who need to be ministered to. And so it's gonna go towards a lot of stuff like that. So please consider uh, prayerfully giving and contributing towards our uh, Love Your City campaign this month for next year's outreach. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Proverbs. If you need a Bible, the men will pass one out to you. Um, we're going to be flipping around a, a lot of different verses here. As you know, Proverbs is not the type of book that we work through um, kind of verse by verse right in a row. We instead gather the, the, the topics from Proverbs. The verses are scattered throughout the entirety of the book. There's no really, a, after you get past chapter 9, there's no, all the chapters and verses are kind of intermixed with different topics back to back to back, different, different things that the verses deal with. And so what we do is we get a lot of the verses on one particular topic together, and then we preach through those verses. That's how we've been doing our Proverbs series. And this morning, we will be covering emotions, emotions. Some of you got very emotional learning that we'd be covering emotions. Um, that's what we're covering. And you might ask, why emotions? Why are we doing that? What does that have to do with the Bible? What does that have to do with with God or Christ or the gospel. And I would just say, for why, first of all, emotions are things that we all have. Everybody in this room has emotions. Unless you're a serious sociopath, everybody has emotions. Some people might have stronger emotions. Some people you might not be able to tell as much. Some folks are kind of more stoic and just kind of always look the same. Even they have emotions, believe it or not. Not only do we all have emotions, but in addition to that, we all use and employ our emotions in everything that we do. Every day in our life, every interaction we have, every relationship we have, decisions that we make, we are using our emotions all the time, constantly, never stopping. Emotions are woven into the very fabric of our lives. So as Christians, we need to ask the question, what what does it look like as a Christian, as someone who loves Jesus, who's been saved by grace, who, who, who's been saved in the gospel, who's been saved to good works, what does it look like to have healthy emotions? What does what is, what is, what is living out biblical emotions look like for me? What does the Bible say about that? And the Bible says a lot about it, as we will see. Particularly, Proverbs says a lot about it. Here's really the, the big idea I want us to walk away with this morning. You think about driving a car. Emotions are a great passenger in life, but they're a terrible driver. Emotions are a great passenger in life, but they're a terrible driver. We're going to revisit this throughout the sermon here this morning together. It'll be kind of blended into everything we talk about. Emotions are a great passenger in life, but a terrible driver. 
The first thing we have to realize as we get into this issue of emotions, however, is that emotions in and of themselves are a good thing, and emotions in and of themselves are actually a gift from God. Your emotions, friends, are a gift. Your emotions are a gift. In Genesis 1 and 2, you'll recall that, that, that those chapters record God as creator. He creates everything. He creates the universe. He creates the world. He creates man, and he creates man and woman, Genesis says, in his image and in his likeness. What that means is he, he's created man. God creates man to reflect something of him. God creates Adam and Eve to reflect to the rest of creation what God is like in a, in a, in a, in a specific, special, and unique way. Animals don't reflect what God is like, like men do. Trees and creation and inanimate objects like rocks don't reflect what God is like in the same way that man does. Man reflects what God is like in a unique and special way. One of the ways that man does this in particular is through emotions. We need to understand that God has emotions. God has emotions. God has compassion, joy, pleasure, anger, grief, sorrow. Scripture talks about all, all of these things. Now, he doesn't have emotions in the same way that we do, especially not as fallen humans. Our emotions are changeable. Things interrupt our emotions. Things change our emotions in the drop of a hat sometimes. God's emotions aren't like that. But our emotions initially were intended to be something like God's. God's are not like ours. Ours were intended, created to be like God's. So when God creates man in his image, one of the things that he creates them with to reflect to the rest of creation is his emotions, man's emotions. Emotions are included in the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God. Now, when we look to the world, we see, we see a different perspective on emotions. We look to the world, we see a couple of different things. Number one, we see the rejection of emotion. The rejection of emotion to varying degrees, but if we're going to blanket it all in. We see the rejection of emotion. This is kind of the, the warped masculinity. Be a man. Don't be in touch with your feelings. Just do your duty, that sort of thing. Emotions are childish. Emotions are feminine. They're for women. So just shut it in. Don't share. Don't open up. Don't be honest. That's weakness, okay, that's, and there's varying degrees of that, but that's kind of the general category, rejection of emotion. Look at John Wayne, look at Gary Cooper, those are the kind of guys you want to be like, strong and silent, you're not whining about stuff all the time. Is there some, is there some truth in, in some of that? Of course, but that has swung way far to one side, it's a rejection of emotion. Emotion is weakness, emotion is maybe even feminine, and men don't show emotion, that's rejection of emotion. That's found in the world. The other swing that we find in the world is the exaltation of emotion. The exaltation of emotion. That your happiness is the, the, the main category of importance in your life. Are you happy? Will it make you happy? Will it make you feel good? Your emotional state being the primary goal in life. Well, I don't care about anything else as long as it makes you happy. As long as you're having a good time, and we even think that to ourselves at times, right? 
Well, as long as I'm happy, then this is good. As long as I'm enjoying this, this is good. Of course, it's a very shallow category to guide our life, but that's a main category that we find in the world on what emotions mean and how they should be involved in our life and how we should view them. Do what you feel is right. Follow your heart. Just You can watch any Disney movie, and this is the type of thing that you'll hear. Okay, follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. When we look to the Bible, though, our standard for emotions, our standard for emotional health, our standard for what it looks like to operate out of emotion or manifest our emotions is not some archetypal man in a movie, some cowboy. It's also not some internal state of our heart, how satisfied I feel at any given time, how happy I feel at any given time. Neither of those things are the standard for emotion. The standard for our emotions, friends, is Jesus. He's our standard. When we talk about as Christians, what does it look like to have a healthy emotional life? What does it look like to handle emotions in the right way, in a God-honoring way, in a God-glorifying way, in a way that will bless others? Jesus Christ is our standard for that. Jesus is God who became a man. Jesus is the perfect man. He's perfect in every way. He never sinned his whole entire life. That includes in his emotions. That includes his emotions. Jesus' emotions were never out of control. Jesus' emotions were never spurious. Jesus' emotions never led him into wrong directions. Jesus' emotions were always under his subjection. And even though all that is true, he demonstrated a full, robust range of all kinds of different emotions. See, some of you <coughs> maybe have heard, as they're teaching out there like this, that Jesus is kind of like a stoic sage. I heard one pastor who I totally love and appreciate and respect, but I heard one pastor one time say, you know, the, the, the Gospels never record Jesus smiling or laughing because he was just... He was so serious, and, all, and it's like, no, that's garbage. Jesus totally laughed. He was a man. He had a good time. In fact, he was known to go around to parties and to have a great time. And it's one of the reasons why the religious leaders didn't like him. Jesus displayed all kinds of emotions. He wasn't a floating sage just kind of dispensing wise truisms. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, there were times where Jesus was serious, of course. There were times where he experienced immeasurable joy. Jesus exhibits compassion in his life. He experiences pity. Jesus weeps over his friend who dies. He weeps over his city that is dying. Jesus, Jesus experiences sorrow. He experiences grief, anxiety, irritation, anger, joy. And his emotions were always in complete alignment with God. And friends, just as Jesus had emotions, we are created in God's image with emotions. And our emotions are part of our personhood, part of what makes us human, part of what makes us a person, people, our emotions. Our emotions are not disconnected from our spirituality. Don't think of emotions as some sort of dispensable appendage that we won't need in heaven. Emotions are part of the fabric of our being, and friends, they are a gift from 
God. Emotions are not part of the fall. We'll get to our emotions being messed up in a minute, but emotions themselves are a gift from God. Proverbs 10, 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 23, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Proverbs 15, 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Friends, emotions are a gift from God. The verses I just read, joy, rejoicing, gladness, cheer, all of these are expressions and gifts of grace and goodness to us from God. Consider some of the most memorable times of your life. I would venture to guess some of those times were also maybe the most acutely emotional. Think about the maybe simple things. Time with a good friend. Good conversation, edifying conversation, maybe even hard conversation, but you walk away going, that was so helpful, I felt so loved, that was so good. Think about the compassion you have if you have children, the compassion you have for your children. You would do anything for them. You feel an overwhelming love and desire (coughs) and compassion for them. Think about the moment your children were born. Think about the embrace of your spouse, your wedding day. Think about an encouraging word from somebody that was well-timed and that really lifted you up. All of these, friends, are emotional experiences. They have emotional components to them, and all of them are gifts of grace. See, this view of Christianity that some people have, this kind of dull boring, monastic, conservative, no fun type of Christianity, it's unbiblical. I gotta be honest with you, it's, it's unbiblical. God is a God of joy. He's a God of compassion. He gives us a full range of emotions that we should fully experience and be blessed by and glorify him with. Okay, Christianity is not a bunch of rules that we have to keep and be really kind of tight-fisted, white-knuckling types of people. We're just trying to get by in life and trying not to break the rules and trying not to make God mad. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. Some of you might have a view of God that's like that, that he's always kind of angry with me. His emotions towards me are, are really angry and really mad and really mean. And look, if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, one of the most <coughs> fearful things about that is that God's wrath is over you. God's wrath is over all of us who are not in Christ. There's a place called hell and it's real and those who don't love and know Jesus and repent of sin and receive forgiveness and then begin to walk in his ways as a result of salvation will go to hell. That's terrifying. But in Christ, friends, Christianity is not about pleasing an angry father. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. Now God's, if I can use the word, emotion towards you who are in Christ is of joy, compassion, delight, 
Not because you and I are so good, but because we're in Christ, and Christ is good. Christ did accomplish all of the work that took away all of the wrath. So emotions are a blessing. They're a gift. Joy, gladness, cheer, all of, all of these things are good gifts from God. <coughs> a blessing from God that we might with them glorify God and bless others. Okay, you might be thinking, this is all good, all great. Emotions are a gift. I'm tracking with you. Um, but I have a question. Because sometimes my emotions get a bit... Hmm, crazy? Sometimes I do things in really emotional states that I end up regretting. Sometimes I do things that I know I'm going to regret later, but I'm so overcome with emotion that I do them anyways. Sometimes in my emotional states, I, I, I do sinful things. Sometimes I do things that, or say things that harm people. Sometimes I can't control my emotions. Sometimes I'm, I'm just deeply offended by small things or I'm hurt and saddened by things that shouldn't make me feel so hurt and saddened. We could go on and on and on, right? So what about those? I'm glad you asked. Emotions are a gift from God for us to enjoy, for us to glorify God with, for us to bless, bless others with. Our emotions are a gift, but we also have to understand, friends, that our emotions are also distorted. Our emotions are distorted. Your emotions are a gift, but your emotions are also distorted. In Genesis chapter two, God creates man and woman. He creates them with emotions. He creates them to glorify him. He creates them in communion with himself and with each other. But then Genesis 3 happens, and in Genesis 3, the man and the woman fall, and distortion now sets in to emotions. Distortion now sets in. In Genesis 3, man sins against God by doing what man wants to do and not what God has told man to do. And friends, when we're created to be connected to God and in relationship with God, if that's what we're created for, when that connection is broken, distortion happens. If you take an animal out of the environment it's created to be in, it's, it, it's not going to work properly. You can't take a fish out of water and have it live a very long time. You can't trim an eagle's wings off and tell it to go and thrive in some countryside hill with, with just kind of hopping around eating worms. It's not going to work. It needs to soar through the skies. There's distortion. That's exactly what happened with man. We're created to be in connection to God, in communion with God, and that's been broken, and now there's distortion. There's distortion in our minds. We don't think rightly. We don't think rightly. There's distortion in our bodies. We get old and sick and infirm. We die. We get injured. And there's also distortion in our emotions. Now, I want to say this because... We need to make a distinction here. You might be asking, thinking this to yourself, or maybe you're not. I'm going to create a bigger problem for you, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Say it anyways. Um, when we talk about sin and distortion and the effects of the fall, we have to do so carefully and we have to do so biblically. Theologians, what we're talking about, theologians call total depravity. 
means that you and I, by nature, apart from Christ, are totally depraved. We don't please God by nature. We don't love God. We don't seek after God. We do things that displease God. We've rebelled against God. See Romans 1, Romans 3. You get a full picture of human depravity in those chapters. But you might be asking, how does that make sense? Because, you know, Christians and non-Christians maybe have crazy emotions sometimes, but we also have good emotions sometimes. And I would just say two things. Christian to non-Christian, non-Christians are apart from Christ. When I was a non-Christian, I was disconnected from God. And the Bible says that whatever we do apart from faith is not pleasing to God. There's okay, so a category there. But the other thing is this, that there's a difference between total depravity and utter depravity. We are not as bad as we could be. So when we talk about biblical, the doctrine of sin from the Bible, what we're not saying is that we are as bad as we possibly could be. And we could be worse, right? We could be worse. We could be doing worse things. Like we could be redeeming all of our wasted time and using it for straight up evil. We could be doing that. Because we're not as bad as we could be. I want to make that distinction. But, but when we talk about distortion in emotion, what we mean by depravity is that there's a fundamental flaw that we ourselves and our emotions, for this context in particular, are fundamentally broken. Not that it's as bad as, it's could, as it could be, but it's fundamentally broken. You think about a computer, you get a virus, and it's going to kill your computer. You might be able to use your computer for some things and have it function properly or using Microsoft Word, but it's fundamentally flawed. If you're deep into stage four cancer, you might still be able to do some things in life, but your cells are fundamentally mutated. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And when it comes to emotions, the, the primary thing it means for our emotions to be distorted, this is really what I want us to grab onto today, the primary thing that it means for our emotions to be distorted is that instead of our emotions being a gauge, which is what God created them to be, instead of being a gauge, they become a guide. Instead of our emotions reporting to us, they begin to rule us. Instead of being our passenger, they become the driver. That's the primary thing it means that our emotions are distorted. And Proverbs lays out this distortion in living color. And so as we get into a few of these things, we need to be honest because with ourselves because this affects all of us. This affects all of us. No matter how healthy our emotional life might be, and I trust many of you, most of you have healthy emotional lives, nonetheless, this distortion affects all of us. We need to be aware of what Scripture says. We need to be aware of what Proverbs says about these distortions, that as we're honest, we can seek Christ continually and ask God the Holy Spirit to shape us into a people that is growing in the likeness and image and being conformed to the image of Christ in the emotions category as well. Number one, desires, sinful desires. Genesis 3.6 is where this starts. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, there's our key word, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Satan comes to Adam and Eve. He tempts Eve with some fruit that God told her not to eat. And she desires it. She desires what she shouldn't desire. And she acts on her desires. Desire, craving, longing for something. Desire is not bad in and of itself. Desire is actually very good in and of itself. But friends, listen, when desire, when certain desires jump in the driver's seat, then they cause much destruction. Let's just start simple. You ever been, well, let me say it this way. You ever been hangry? You know what that is, right? When you're hungry, you're so hungry that you're angry. It's like, I haven't eaten for a couple hours. I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm starting to become unpleasant. I'm starting to become short. I need to get that sandwich. It's like a couple more hours go by, and it's like, if anybody crosses my path, I'm going to bite their head off. Unless they have a sandwich for me. (laughs) Because I need to get some food. Hey, look, when you're hangry, desire has jumped in the driver's seat. You understand that? You say, that's a funny example and everything, but I'm serious. Desire has jumped in the driver's seat. How about when you need sleep? And you are like a monster because you need sleep, right? You can't control the emotions that are, like your filter is, has really gotten smashed up a bit. You desire some rest, and so your emotions are out of control. Am I saying, oh, suck it up, don't get sleep? No, go get some sleep, but nonetheless, your emotions have jumped in the driver's seat. How about your spending? Black Friday, a couple days ago, right? I'm sure giving is going to be really low this week. This is probably a horrible time, actually, to start this. (laughs) Didn't even think about that. Black Friday, Christmas is coming up, Cyber Monday or whatever is on Monday. Black Friday is not Black Friday anymore, by the way. It's like 10, it's like 10 days. It's like Black Black week, right? Like black, black 10 days. Because it's like Black Friday every, every day, it feels like, since Thanksgiving. So how about Black Friday? How about shopping for Christmas? Is it bad to shop for Christmas? Of course not. But look, are there things that you're spending your money on that you feel that you desperately need? I need to buy this. I need to get this. I need to have this. My desire is so strong for it, and there goes my spending. As my desire goes, there my spending goes. How's your desire been in your spending? How about in making major decisions? Maybe you've gotten a great opportunity, right, to move somewhere, to take another job, or to move companies, or to do something else. Maybe you have a major decision coming up, and... Maybe it's not the best decision, honestly. Maybe it sounds really good and there's a lot of benefits, but it's really not very wise. But maybe you haven't even investigated if it's wise or not because you're just so excited and you desire it, your emotions have jumped in the driver's seat. Sometimes, friends, we feel really sincere about something. We feel like we know, we just know, I just feel it. I have a deep down sense. I just know this is what I want. And, I, and it's such a sincere and earnest 
feeling and desire, and we think to ourselves somehow that our earnestness makes it right. Well, that's not always the case. But when we feel really strongly about something we want, desire has now jumped into the driver's seat, or at least it's jostling for the driver's seat. And we choose to let it in or to tell it to sit back in the passenger seat. Proverbs 21, 25 through 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves and craves. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sluggard desires. See, everyone has desires, right? Again, desires aren't bad. But <laughs> when desires are in the driver's seat, they end up being destructive. And the sluggard, the lazy person, just sits around and craves and wants. This is what I want. I'm so miserable. This is what I need. This is what I not really willing to work hard for it though and you know honestly if you give me really any real significant advice or correct me I'm just going to get mad I just crave and crave and crave but I never really take any action that's a different kind of distorted desire just wants the result no plan no work Des desires can be distorted friends we could go on and on and on and on first is, is desire second is envy Envy, Proverbs 14, 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Um, I found a quote from a British newspaper. It said this, the one unpardonable crime is another's succeeding more than we have. That's envy. Someone else succeeds more than we have, and if that's a person we resent, that's the unpardonable crime. Someone's gotten something that we want. Someone's succeeded where we haven't yet succeeded. Or maybe they have succeeded where we have succeeded. We just don't want them to succeed. Discontented, resentful, bitterness that's aroused by what someone else has or what someone else has done. Now look, envy is not just wanting what somebody else has. That's covetousness. It's not just wanting what somebody else has in a sinful way. Wanting what somebody else has isn't always bad. If you're a godly, biblical person and you know your Bible, you're really mature, you have a great marriage, for all you younger people in the church who are not any of those things, you should want that. You should want that. And you should, you should ask that person to help you get to that place. But there's a sinful covetousness. I want what you have. It, it, it's, a, it, it's driven from a selfish motive, from selfish ambition. It's not holy, it's not godly, it's not biblical, it's just selfishness and prideful and carnal. Okay, but that's covetousness. Envy is even worse. Envy is not only do we want what somebody else has or we're jealous when they accomplish something that we haven't, but we think that we deserve it, not them. It's not just that we want what they have, but we also think you don't deserve that, and I do. How did you get that? How did I get passed over for that promotion? How did you get a girlfriend and I haven't, or a boyfriend? How come you're pregnant and I'm not? Why do you have a successful career and I don't? And now I'm resentful and angry and bitter. And Proverbs says that envy is... is it rots us spiritually 
but it also rots us physically. It's like rottenness in the bones. Proverbs 14, 30. You're going to be stressed out. You're not going to be able to sleep as well. A lot of weird things happen when we get envious. We start to physically deteriorate as well as spiritually. Why did Cain kill Abel? Envy. Why did Saul attempt to kill David? Envy. Why did the religious leaders murder the Lord Jesus Christ? Envy. Even Pilate saw they were envious. We saw that in John 19. Why did the religious leaders persecute the early church? Envy. Are you envious? Are you envious? Is there anyone in life who if they succeed or if they get something that you want, it, it upsets you, it irritates you, you don't like it? Or is there anyone in life where if they failed or fall, you are satisfied? It actually makes you happy. Number three, anger. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Look, I want us to be clear on something here when it comes to anger. Anger is a good thing. Anger is a good thing in and of itself, just as most of these things are. Envy is not really a good thing in and of itself. One author says actually about envy that it's the only one of those deadly sins that's no fun at all. Right? The other ones are fun for a season. Um, a- anger in itself is a good thing. I read one quote this week where the author said, actually the closer to Christ we get, the angrier we will become at actual sin and evil. So anger is a good thing. We need a, a righteous, godly, good, biblical anger to be Christians. We need to have convictions about who Jesus is, what the gospel is, what the church is, and, man, when we see um, things being peddled and pilfered as gospel in the church that are not so, that should cause a holy anger in us. Okay, so anger in itself is, is, is good, but there's a fine line between holy anger and distorted sinful anger. Isn't there? A couple heart-searching questions. What angers you? What actually angers you? What angers you? There's a lot of good things we could be angered about. What are some things that anger you that maybe aren't so good? Personal slights? Your expectations not being met? You being misunderstood? Your standards not being met? What angers you? Second question is, what do you do with your anger? What do you do with your anger? Proverbs 14, 29. I'm sorry, 1911. Good sense makes one slow to anger, 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. What do you do with your anger? Tell you one thing, whether it's a good cause to be angry about or a sinful, selfish cause, if you're quick to anger, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. It's immaturity and foolish to be quick to anger. When we're quick to anger, you know what that's a sign of? It's a sign of the fact that anger has taken the driver's seat. Okay, when your kids are frustrating you, when you feel like your spouse isn't appreciating you, when somebody slights your image, undermines you, are you quick to anger? Whoever is quick to anger, Proverbs 14, exacts, exalts rather folly. Okay, it's simply foolishness. It's foolishness to be quick to anger. Proverbs 15, 18, again, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Are, are you able to overlook offenses? Are you able to be gracious even when <coughs> you feel angry? Are you able to be patient or does the dam just break? Do you feel the need to make sure justice is meted out every single time? Again, Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. When someone is angry with us, what I've realized is that we're often slow to admit what we've done. We're often slow to apologize. But when we feel angry, we need it to be immediately resolved. When we feel someone has wronged us, we need justice right now. And we're not taking any excuses. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. There's a Bible verse for you here that tells you if that tells you not to be friends with somebody who has really bad anger problems. If anger is in the driver's seat, chances are you're going to end up pretty lonely. Number four, selfishness. Putting your own interests before the interests of others. Selfishness. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. One author uh, says this about that verse. Everyone who knows better warns him, but he will not hear. Who is that? That's the one who separates himself from others to pursue his own interests and his own desires. He's so wrapped up in himself and what he is doing that for all he cares, the world can go hang. Okay, it's a colorful way of commenting on that verse. Selfishness. My needs first, my needs most. I'm thinking about myself. What's going to make me happy? What do I need? What do I want? If I have some time on the side, I'll think about others. Selfishness. This deep feeling of what I'm doing is important. What I'm doing is meaningful. What I'm doing is, is, is good. What I'm doing is more urgent, crucial, and important. So much so that we isolate ourselves even. can get to that point where we isolate ourselves so nobody else can continue to give me any input. 
Sometimes that isolation is really negative. Go away. I'm not going to listen to any counsel. Sometimes it just means, well, I decided to go and do this. See y'all later. Oh, you, you don't think it's a good idea? Okay, thanks. Thanks. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I feel it's the right decision. I feel called, right? Just throw that in there for that, lob that little bi- biblical word grenade in there. I feel called. I feel called. Is there a legitimate time where God calls people? Yeah, but you can't just throw it on whatever you want to do. You can't. You just say, I want to do it, and I'm, I'm not going to listen to your advice. Okay, that's fine, but it might be really selfish. It might be. Um, what are your thoughts spent on? What's your time spent on? What's your money spent on? Those are some good categories to kind of take a temperature of your selfishness. Thoughts, time, money. Sometimes um, all of our time is spent on ourselves or what we want to do and we spend and we do five minutes for someone else. It's like one pro somebody else moment and it's like, whew, did my part. You know, checked off, I checked that box. I connected with them, good. That's, that's satisfied for now. It's selfishness. Proverbs 15, 27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. You might think there, that sounds like greed. It is, but ultimately it's selfishness. Ultimately it's selfishness. Whoever's greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. This isn't good for me. It's not good for my family. This is not honest. It's not, doesn't have, there's no integrity here. This is not really good, um, but I want it. I'm gonna go do it. Even at the expense of not leading my family well, not loving my family, not taking care of my family. But this is what I want. This is what I want. Self-interest, when self-interest is in the driver's seat, we are willing to sacrifice a lot, including sometimes health of our family. And if we're honest, I think we need to be honest here, we are all so selfish by nature. We are all selfish by nature. We actually need the spirit of Christ to totally invade our lives for us to go from self-centered to other-centered. But listen, if you're a Christian and you're living basically a selfish lifestyle and it could look really nice. Selfishness is the thing. It doesn't look mean. It could look really, you could be a really, really nice, kind, polite, selfish person. It's totally possible. But if selfishness is kind of rules in our life, Man, we need to ask Christ to conform us to be other-centered, away from self-centered, away from me, and towards others. Lastly, fear. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. Are there some parts of fear that are good? Yes, there are. The fear of the Lord is good. It's the beginning of wisdom. But if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of man is the beginning of folly. Fear. Fear. Fearing other people. Is it wrong to desire to please other people? Is it wrong to seek the good of other people to make them happy, to give them joy? It's not wrong, right? It's actually good. There's like lots and lots and lots of verses in the Bible telling us to do exactly that. But when that jumps in the driver's seat, it becomes a snare. It traps our life. 
We're constantly now trying to seek the approval of somebody else, somebody we admire, somebody we love, somebody we care about, maybe our own child. Fear of man lays a snare. When the fear of man is in the driver's seat, we are in the bear trap. If our God is human approval, then acceptance, recognition, and credit will be our heaven. But criticism and underappreciation will be our hell. Fear of man. There's also fear of future. Fear of future. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Proverbs 28, 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. When fear is in the driver's seat, fear about the future will be swamped with anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this doesn't work out? What if, we have all this different web of, and it's all fear-driven, anxiety-driven, and we're swamped with doubt, self-doubt, with uncertainty because of fear. What do we do with all these? It's like, wow, you know, all right, I realize I'm pretty messed up. You know, my emotions are pretty, they're pretty messed up. They're, they can be pretty distorted. So what do we do? What's the remedy? Emotions are a gift, but they've, they've been distorted. What needs to happen? My son has a, he loves little matchbox trucks, and we're playing with them in the oven yesterday, pretending that, uh, not when it was on, you know, pretending it was... <laughs> They're cooking stuff, and they're like, it's ready, and they're pulling stuff in and out. They took it all out, and Grandma was making uh, dinner, and all of a sudden, we smell this plastic burning. It's like, oh, what's that? And there was a car left in there. It's like the car is a good little gift that he totally enjoys, and it got really distorted. He needs a new one. He needs a new one. We don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, well, you can't play with cars anymore. No, no, no. The cars are good. You need a new one, though. Your emotions need to be redeemed. Your emotions and my emotions need to be redeemed. They're a gift. They've been distorted. They need to be redeemed. They need to be redeemed. We all have placed our emotions in the driver's seat to varying degrees and at different times, but we all have. We've all placed desire in the driver's seat at times, envy in the driver's seat, anger in the driver's seat, selfishness in the driver's seat, fear in the driver's seat. But friends, when we look to Jesus Christ, we see one who had true, full, vibrant emotions, but they were never distorted. And on the cross, he pays for our distorted emotions. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Grief and sorrow are emotions that are a result of sin and the fall. Jesus goes to the cross to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. On the cross, Jesus' desire to redeem far outweighs our distorted desires. On the cross, Jesus' contentment to be humbled, even to the point of death on a cross, 
His contentment to do that is stronger than any envy you and I have ever exhibited. On the cross, Jesus' love for you is superior to your anger towards Him and towards others. On the cross, His selfless sacrifice crushes your selfishness and my selfishness. And the boldness that Jesus displayed at the cross forever trumps your fear. Friends, in Christ, in Christ and in Christ alone, through Christ alone, by Christ alone, your emotions are redeemed and redirected. Instead of having incessant sinful desires, your greatest desire in Christ will be Christ. It'll be God. Your greatest desire will be for Him. Psalm 42.1, we sang it earlier as a church. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. In Christ, our envy becomes contentment. We realize Christ satisfies all of our needs. He's the good shepherd. I don't need to be envious. I'm satisfied in Christ. I can be content in Christ. In Christ, our anger and strife, instead of stirring up strife in our anger, we begin to desire to stir up love and good works among the people of God. In Christ, our self-focus gets turned inside out and becomes other-focused. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our self-focus gets turned into Christ-focus and other-focus. And friends, in Christ, our fear of man and our fear of the future gets smashed by the fear of God. 1 John 4.18 says this, that perfect love casts out fear. Friends, if you're in Christ, your emotions have been redeemed and your emotions are being redirected. If you're in Christ, your emotions have gone from distorted to made whole. Does this mean that you're perfect? No. Does this mean that, oh, now overnight everything's going to change? No. It does mean positionally, God views you with joy, delight, compassion, and care. And now, in life, our emotions get redirected towards him. So friends, this week, as we consider our emotions, I'm going to ask you to continue to pray that God the Holy Spirit would help shape your emotions into emotions like Christ. I'm going to ask you to be on the lookout for times when your emotions want to jump in the driver's seat and you need to tell them, get back in the passenger seat. That's where they belong. That's where God created them to be. That is where your emotions through you will be a blessing to you. Glorify God and glorify others. Amen?
Father God, we thank you for giving us the gift of emotions. We thank you for all of the, the, the full range of, of emotions that we can experience and display and enjoy. And God, we ask for forgiveness. We repent when our emotions have been distorted, when our emotions have been off track, when our emotions have been sinful, when our emotions have been our driver instead of our passenger, when emotions have been our guide instead of our gauge. And God, I ask, Lord, that you'd help us as a church to grow up into you who is the head of your church, that you'd mature us, Jesus, in every way, including our emotions, that we might love and glorify you and be a good blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.